Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for Friday, March 22nd of 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with print disability. I'm Barbara Martin, and my partner on the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Kirk Anderson. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now, let's take a look at the weather and some headlines for today's In the Register. Looks like, hmm, you can tell, a pretty crummy day out there. We're going to have a high of 45, a low of 24, a mix of rain and snow and slush. So best just to keep hold of your seats there. It's going to be breezy and cooler today. And it looks like we're not going to get much sunshine until... When? Oh, Tuesday of next week. All right. The weekend's going to be relatively the same. On Monday, it's going to a little hot, go, go to 56 degrees with a low of 26. So, welcome, March. Okay, we'll look at the front page here, and these are the items we will be reading. Entitled one is Jails Unlawfully Billing Inmates. That's a report. Then we have Grassley and Ernst see nearly 50% approval. Hmm. And World War II veterans are honored, which you may have heard about. And automakers get more time under Biden administration's new emission rules. And to get us started, we'll turn here to Kirk. Hey, good morning, everybody. Today's first item is a report, Jails Unlawfully Billing Inmates. Ombudsman says Polk County is among the offenders. Responding to what it says has been years of uneven compliance, the Iowa Office of Ombudsman is calling on the state's county jails to follow the law on charging prisoners for health care and room and board. Ombudsman Bernardo Grawler, in a report issued Thursday, found that several county jails in Iowa, including Polk counties, have been collecting money from inmates for health care costs before they were convicted and without a court order. The report said that it violates an Iowa law on the book since 2006. County sheriffs are allowed to seek recovery of medical and other costs from inmates only if they are found guilty and after a bill of costs is presented to a court and approved. Grandware said in a statement, We've actually had complaints coming in for years, he told the Des Moines Register. We decided to move forward with this as a public report to bring attention to the issues and maybe resolve the issue. He recommended that all Iowa sheriffs review their practices to ensure they comply with the law. In addition, he said he has, recommend, he has recommended that the Iowa Department of Corrections propose amendments to an administrative rule that has confused jail officials. The department acknowledged that the issue uh, the department acknowledged the issue but is not committed to amend the relevant rule, Granware said. I hope this report starts a conversation that ultimately leads to consistency in how jails handle inmate health care costs, he said in the statement. 
The Granware, uh, the law Granware cites in the report says that a county sheriff may charge a prisoner, prisoner who is 18 years of age or older and who has been convicted of a criminal offense or sent, uh, sentenced for contempt of court for violation of a domestic abuse order for the actual administrative costs relating to the arrest and booking of that prisoner for room and board provided to the prisoner while in the custody of the county sheriff or municipality and for any medical aid provided to the prisoner. If a prisoner who has been convicted of a criminal offense or sentenced for contempt of court for violation of a domestic abuse order fails for uh, fails to pay for the administrative costs, the room and board or medical aid, the sheriff or municipality may file a reimbursement claim with the district court. Granware said his office put out a special report in 2016 to draw jail's attention to the requirement but it apparently went largely unheeded. The new report in particular focused on the Scott, Wapolo, Mills, and O'Brien County jails and identified eight other counties that it said were at least partially out of compliance with the law. Among them, it said Polk County acknowledged charging inmates for medical care before they were convicted. Granware said none of the four jails at the center of the report disagreed with his interpretation of the law and that three of the four, excluding Wapolo, already had committed or made changes, committed to or made changes to their practices. He said a source of the problems had been that the Iowa Administrative Code, which also addresses reimbursement of jails for medical services and room and board, was never updated to reflect a 2006 change in the law. He said that he has urged the Department of Corrections to rewrite the code section. We've had constructive dialogue with the department, and they understand what the problem is, Granware said. We just want to encourage them to take the step of amending the rule that's causing confusion. I'm optimistic they will follow through, and if they do this problem, the problem will go away statewide. The Department of Corrections did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The ACLU says years of non-compliance with the law are shocking, but not surprising. The Iowa officials of the American Civil Liberties Union said they agree with Granware's conclusions and recommendations. The group's National Prison Project seeks to identify and prevent abuses of prisoners' rights. Sheriffs and jail personnel who decline to provide basic necessary medical care for inmates prior to conviction are in the wrong under Iowa law. ACLU of Iowa Policy Director Pete McRoberts said in an emailed statement. With regard to the provision of medical services in jails, Iowa law was changed nearly 20 years ago to require a conviction prior to assessing fees to inmates, McRoberts said. Almost two decades later, it is shocking, but not surprising, to see that local governments are still not following state law, he said. The ACLU of Iowa will seek to ensure that Iowa sheriffs, that all Iowa sheriffs abide by the statutory or by statutory and constitutional requirements regarding the well-being of jail inmates, he said. We are, however, disturbed that the State Department of Corrections continues to decline to use its authority to resolve any misapplication of Iowa law regarding provisions of health care in county jails, he said. ACLU of Iowa officials are concerned that the department was formally asked to assist on the issue, but has declined to make any changes, he said. 
The department has had 18 years to get this right, McRoberts said. It's many directors over the years have known or should have known of this issue. At this time, it is beyond doubt that the department, of, uh, the department management is well aware of the law. If department leadership continues to stonewall and enable further skirting of state law, then we urge the Iowa legislator to use its oversight and statutory prerogatives to force a course correction, he said. Automakers get more time under Biden administration's new emission rules. This is by Todd Spangler of the USA Today. The Biden administration on Wednesday finalized tough new greenhouse gas standards for cars sold in the U.S., but gave a break to automakers worried that they might be too strict to meet in enacting a slower ramp-up in the first few years before standards increase more steeply. The decision, however, was a blow to Midwest farm and ethanol groups. They complained that the federal government failed to consider the environmental benefits that the largely corn-based renewable fuel could provide as the nation seeks to slash carbon emissions. This decision will not only severely hamper the administration's ability to reach its own climate goals, but it will also hurt family farms and rural communities that rely heavily on the sale of biofuels, said Minnesota corn grower Harold Wool, president of the National Corn Growers Association Board. Nearly a year ago, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, shocked the auto industry and heartened environmentalists by proposing tailpipe emission standards so restrict that by model year 2032, automakers would virtually be required to ensure that two-thirds of all new cars and light-duty trucks Sold with electric ve- uh, sold were electric vehicles or potentially face stiff fines. The final standards released Wednesday didn't back off that ambitious 2032 target in terms of the fleet-wide reduction in greenhouse gases, including carbon monoxide, hydrocarbons, and others that are considered dangerous to human health and contribute to climate change. But they did change the amount by which those reductions occur, beginning with model year 2027, making them somewhat less strict compared to the current standards in the first couple of years, before ramping them up more steeply later. The original proposal was always technology neutral in theory, meaning that automakers could sell any cars and light-duty trucks that they wanted as long as they hit the fleet-wide reductions. That proposal uh, had noted that the likely and least costly path toward hitting the standards meant an enormous growth in the sales of of plug-in electric vehicles, PEVs, which accounted for only 9% of new car sales last year. The final rule, however, outlined several pathways that could work. For instance, the EPA said under one likely pathway, the percentage of light-duty trucks and car powered, cars powered by internal combustion en- engines could drop from 64% of new vehicle sales in model year 2027 and 58% in model year 2028 
to 29% in model year 2032, while the percentage of battery-only electric vehicles could increase from 20 26 percent in 2027 and 31 percent in 2028 to 56 percent in 2028. With other EVs, pure hybrids, and plug-in hybrids making up the difference. In the proposed rule last year, however, the pathway foresaw battery-only EVs needing to account for 36% of new cars in 2027 and 45% in 2028, a much steeper sales curve. That change didn't set well with some environmental uh, groups. Dan Becker, director of the Center for Biological Diversity's Safe Climate Transport Campaign, said that the EPA caved to pressure from big auto, big oil, and car dealers, allowing more damage to the planet and public health out, uh, up, up front. But many other environmental groups cheered the plan as historically strict. Automakers and the United Auto Workers Union said that it recognized the challenges facing the industry in the move to get the public to embrace EVs. Pace matters to automakers. It is certainly matters to consumers, said John Bozella, uh, the president of the CEO of the Alliance for Auto Innova Innovation a trade group that represents most automakers doing business in the U.S., including Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. He noted that while automakers are committed to an electric future, choppy sales, supply chain issues, and a nationwide charging infrastructure that still must be built warranted the more gradual change in standards. The end product, he said, is much improved over what was originally proposed. Farm and renewable fuel groups said that EPA ignored the EV's upstream emissions tied to electricity generation and mining and processing of rare minerals needed to make batteries. While we share the Biden administration's vision for reducing carbon emissions and increasing energy efficiency, today's final rule certainly isn't the best way to accomplish that goal, Renewable Fuels Association CEO Jeff Cooper said in a statement. Today's final rule effectively forces automakers to produce more battery electric vehicles based on the false premise that they are zero-emission vehicles, Cooper said. At the same time, the regulation would strongly encourage manufacturers from pursuing other technologies like flex-fuel vehicles and engines optimized to operate on high-octane, low-carbon uh, ethanol that could achieve superior environmental performance at a lower cost to American consumers. The concern weigh, concerns weigh heavily in Iowa. Uh, the nation's largest corn grower and ethanol producer. About half of the state's annual corn crop is based to make the biofuel. And the Renewable Fuels Association said the industry is on its way to a net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Among the paths is carbon capture and sequestration, a controversial issue in Iowa where two companies seek to build carbon capture pipelines. Advocates say the projects are uh, vital to ethanol remaining viable, but opponents say the pipelines are unsafe, trample on landowners' rights, and damage farmland. 
President Joe Biden, whose administration worked with environmentalists, the automakers, and the uh, UAW in reaching the final rule, and who has been chastised by Republicans and former President Donald Trump for implementing what they have called an EV mandate, issued a statement saying that he's following through on the promise to try to make half of all new cars and trucks sold by 2030 to be zero emission. Today, we're setting a, a new pollution standards for cars and trucks, he said. U.S. workers will lead the world in automaking, clean cars and trucks, each stamped made in America. You have my word. EPA Administrator Michael Regan also noted that, with transportation sources making up the largest percentage of greenhouse gas pollutants, the new standards will protect public health while creating new jobs for workers building vehicles that comply with them. The standards will slash over 7 billion tons of climate pollution, improve air quality in overburdened communities, and give drivers more clean vehicle choices while saving them money, Reagan said. But the greenhouse gas requirements, which were rolled back by the Trump administration before being replaced with Bi uh, when Biden took office in 21, have become a sharp issue in this year's presidential rematch between Biden and Trump. The former president is arguing that the vehicles are too expensive, though they are eligible for tax breaks and can save thousands in fuel costs, and that they don't travel as far as internal combustion vehicles, which is not true in the case of many models. Trump also has argued that auto workers will lose their jobs because of the new standards as China dominates the EV market. Well, over the weekend, he said at a rally in Ohio that there will be a bloodbath in the auto industry with foreign-made cars flooding the U.S. And, uh, unless he is elected. But U.S. automakers have been investing billions, much of it sparked by incentives produced by Biden and passed by Congress in new EV plants domestically. The report also specifically mentioned that while union workers may be adversely affected by the transition to EVs, since they typically require fewer workers to assemble, with much of the labor associated with the manufacture of the batteries. The UAW, in its successful strike of the Detroit 3 automakers last year, negotiated contracts making more workers involved in EV production eligible to be unionized. In a statement Wednesday, the union said the final rule represented significant progress from the first proposal. By taking seriously the concerns of workers and communities, the EPA has come a long way to create a more flexible emissions rule that protects workers building ICE vehicles while providing a path toward forward for automobiles to implement the full range of automotive technologies to reduce emissions, it said. The EPA's final rule also set tough new standards for the medium-duty vehicles like vans. Both sets of standards will need to be coordinated with fuel economy standards, generally stated in terms of miles per gallon of fuel and their equivalent for electric vehicles set by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which is expected to happen in the next several months. And according to an Iowa poll, 
a register exclusive since 1943, Grassley and Ernst see nearly 50% approval. Both lose some support among GOP in the past year. About half of Iowans approve the work the state's two U.S. senators are doing in Congress, according to a new Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll. But the share of Iowans who disapprove of Republican U.S. Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst has risen by 4%, uh, 4 percentage points each since March of 2023. And each senator lost ground with Republicans and evangelicals as a growing share of those groups say they disapprove of the job performances. Overall, 47% of Iowans now approve of the job that Grassley is doing in the Senate, down slightly from the 49% a year ago, and 40%, excuse me, 45% disapprove, an increase from 41% a year ago. Another 8% are not sure. The poll shows 48% approve of Ernst's performance, up a tick from 47% a year ago. Another 43% disapprove, up from 39%, and 9% are not sure. Sean Fessler, a 45-year-old poll respondent who identifies as a Republican and who agreed to a follow-up interview, said he's among those who have a negative view of Grassley. Senators and Congress should have term limits like the presidents do, he said. I don't really get behind the career politicians. Fessler, an Ottumwa resident, said he has a more favorable view of Ernst. He likes that she has been more open to same-sex marriages and that she voted for legislation guaranteeing federal recognition of any marriage between two people if the union was valid in the state where they wed. The poll of 804 Iowa adults was conducted February 25th through the 28th by Selzer & Company of Des Moines. It has a margin of error plus or minus 3.5 percentage points. Both Grassley and Ernst have lost ground with Iowa Republicans and evangelicals over the past year, the poll shows. Among Republicans, 70% approve of Grassley's job performance and 23% disapprove. That's down from a year ago when 81% of Republicans approved and 11% disapproved. Among evangelicals, the drop-off is even more pronounced. Now 57% of evangelicals approve of Grassley's performance, down 18 percentage points from a year ago when 75% of evangelicals approved. 36% of evangelicals disapprove now, up 15 points from 21% in 2023. Evangelicals seem to be backing off of their appreciation for the senior senator, which may be part of the reason his approval rating dropped a bit, said pollster J. Ann Selzer. Ernst also saw erosion with both groups. Among Republicans, 66% approve of her performance, down from 75% a year ago. And the share of evangelicals who say they approve of Ernst's job performance has fallen 6 percentage points, from 64% in March 2023 to 58% today, putting her numbers on or, or about or on par with Grassley's current numbers. Ernst previously faced conservative pushback for a string of votes she took related to same-sex marriage, firearms legislation, and Ukraine funding in 2022 and early 2023. 
but Grassley's votes have not made as many public waves. At the same time, Selzer noted, presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump is not only holding his own with evangelicals, but his popularity is rising. It's not that evangelicals have tired of Republicans, she said. Trump is not in office, so his job approval was not tested by the Iowa poll. But the share of evangelicals who view him favorably has grown. In 2023, 58% of Iowa evangelicals viewed him favorably. That's up to 70% today. Grassley also saw the share of those who viewed him favorably drop 5 percentage points. Among all Iowans, 46% say they have a favorable view of Grassley, down from 51% in March. Another 43% say they view him unfavorably, up from 41%. Another 11% are not sure. Among evangelicals, 55% view Grassley favorably, and 37% view him unfavorably. That's compared with March 2023, when 76% of evangelicals viewed him favorably, and 20% viewed him unfavorably. Barb Davis, an 87-year-old Manchester resident and poll respondent, said she had mixed feelings about Grassley. I think Chuck is a little too old to keep up with everything, she said, but basically he's done a pretty good job, and overall, I guess. Sometimes I get angry with him, and other times I think, good job. Davis said she doesn't identify with either major political party currently. I would frankly be ashamed to call myself a Republican or a Democrat, she said. I think they have just gone off the wall, and that's why I kind of quit watching news and stuff. Politicians don't seem to want to do any good. They just want to tear the other party apart. Ernst saw her overall favorable numbers tick up, with 47% viewing her favorably today compared with 45% a year ago. She is viewed unfavorably by 43% down from 44% last year. But as with Grassley, evangelicals have an increasingly unfavorable view of her. Among, even, among evangelicals, 56% view her favorably and 33% view her unfavorably. That's compared with last year when 65% viewed her favorably and 25% viewed her unfavorably. In a related correction from yesterday's paper, Thursday's front page Iowa poll story gauging likely voters support for Republican or Democrats in four congressional districts incorrectly stated the years uh, Representative Zach Nunn was elected to Congress. He was elected in 2022. Intolerable conditions. Nurse is awarded benefits. This is written by Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. A judge has awarded jobless benefits to an Iowa nurse who quit her job at a care facility that has a history of issues with staffing and resident abuse. State records indicate that Jessica M. Nelson worked at the Grundy Care Center from February 2023 to January of this year, and when she resigned her position as the interim director of nursing. The facility's previous director of nursing had left the facility in the summer of 23, after which Nelson told an administrative law judge that she began working very long shifts that sometimes exceeded 12 hours. 
On other occasions, she alleged that she was assigned to work a shift of less than 12 hours, but was expected to return to work within two or three hours to work an additional shift. Nelson told the judge who presided over a recent unemployment benefits hearing that she told her superiors that she had concerns about her ability to drive safely during her commute to and from work and about her ability to properly perform all of her patient care duties in a manner that wouldn't jeopardize her nursing license. She alleged that she had refused the job of interim director of nursing but was assigned those duties anyway. She said that although she had the authority to have other nurses stay to cover shifts, the other nurses would often threaten to walk off the job. She also alleged that in December of 2023 and January of 24, there were three incidences in which she had to work without any opportunity to rest. According to Nelson, the Homes Administrator, Robin Beacon, was sympathetic but was unable to resolve the issue. Nelson alleged that she spoke with the management at the Florida company that operates the home, but they suggested that she fill shift openings by using a temp agency that rarely had nurses available. On January 20, Nelson was in Chicago when the home was short-staffed, which resulted in a floor nurse covering the majority of two 12-hour shifts Nelson said that she then had to drive back to Iowa from Chicago to work the evening shift on January 21. She resigned the next day, effectively, Im effectively immediately effective, and applied for unemployment benefits. The company that operates the care center, Arborita Healthcare of Florida, challenged the application, which led to a, a hearing before Administrative Law Judge Alex Rowe, who um, ruled that Nelson had been subjected to intolerable working conditions. Nelson Rowe, or Rowe ruled, quit the employment because there was an absence of meaningful responses to her concerns regarding the increasing frequency of excessively long shifts. She had reasonable concerns about her own safety and her ability to properly provide care for her patients should she be forced to work without proper rest. She had notified multiple people at the employer uh, uh, regarding her concerns. The 40-bed Grundy Care Center has the lowest possible rating from the federal government for overall care, inspection results, and staffing levels. Last August, the facility was cited for 19 regulatory violations, including failure to have competent nursing staff. One nurse aide who was employed through a temp agency reportedly told state inspectors, quote, the facility does not give any training. You just figure it out as you go. There are no care plans on the wall, so I don't know what the residents need because I do not have access to the computer uh, to chart. The facility also was cited by the state for playing res placing residents in immediate jeopardy by failing to protect them from abuse. Inspectors reported that one of the home's male residents had been seen entering female residents' rooms and had been seen kissing and, uh, or inappropriately touching three other residents who had diminished cognitive abilities. 
In one instance, the man was reportedly found in a woman's room with his hands on her breasts and genitals. According to inspectors, a registered nurse at the home stated that the man would prey on female residents who are not able to say no and not able to get away from him. A medication aide at the relayed um, similar concern to inspectors and said that the man would size up newly admitted women and would target them with dis, uh, diminished capacity. The state inspectors reported that the home's administrator and vice president of clinical services acknowledged they had failed to prevent the abuse despite their knowledge of the man's behavioral issues. The facility was also cited for an 8% medication error rate, failure to provide residents with pain medication, using unnecessary psychotrophic medications, and issues with infection control. As a result of those findings, the home was fined $25,970 by the federal government. In April of 2023, the home was cited for failing to investigate abuse and failing to report abuse to the state. In that case, residents and employees had reported that a nurse aide had verbally abused a resident by getting in the woman's face and telling her to shut up. The home was also cited for resident abuse in September of 22 after a registered nurse allegedly threatened a resident who complained about not receiving his pain medication. The resident alleged the nurse told him, I don't appreciate what you're saying about me. And then say, she said that was the only nurse, she was the only nurse working and that it would be his fault if she walked off the job and all the residents of the home were left without nursing care. According to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Arborita Healthcare has over, uh, ownership and management ties to 24 care facilities in five states. Over the years, CMS has fined the company a total of more than $1.25 million, according to the agency. Officials at Grundy Care Center and Arborita Healthcare did not return calls Wednesday from the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. Kirk? Des Moines Morning Anchor Scott Carpenter is departing from the Central Iowa News Station, he announced in a Facebook post on March 20th. Carpenter is joining WVTM in Birmingham, Alabama, a station that is also owned by Hearst Television as a morning anchor. I've had the pleasure of working in a newsroom that is full of people who are bright, professional, and dedicated to bringing Central Iowa the news we need to know, he wrote on his social media post. They are great at what they do, but they are even better people. When is Scott Carpenter's last day at KCCI? His last day on air is March 29th. Scott has eagerly jumped into anything we've thrown at him, from anchoring to traffic to sports to investigations, said KCCI News Director Allison Smith in a quote provided to the Des Moines Register from KCCI. We wish Scott continued success at our sister station in Birmingham. Who is Scott Carpenter? Car uh, Carpenter joined KCCI in 2020, according to his biography on KCCI's website. We had no idea what Iowa had in store for us, Carpenter wrote. 
of he and his wife's arrival to Iowa. I can say we are leaving with many more lifelong friends and another dog added to our family zone. He was promoted from weekend morning anchor to weekdays, covering news and traffic on morning program KCCI This Morning, the Des Moines Register reported in 2022. Carpenter is an Ohio native and studied at Heidelberg University in Ohio, according to his KCCI bio. Breeder to downsize after puppies die in cold. Clark Kaufman. State regulators are requiring a southern Iowa dog breeder to downsize her business in the wake of several of her animals dying due to the cold. In December of 2023, a federal inspector from the U.S. Department of Agriculture visited a dog breeding kennel located in the Van Buren County town of Cantrell. The business operates on property owned by Steve Cruz, one of the Iowa's largest dog breeders, but it is operating under a license held by Juanita Swedland. The federal inspector reported that in November of 23, a French bulldog, bulldog named Brittany gave birth to four puppies, three of which were found dead within days. Sweden allegedly indicated the puppies must have gotten too cold and passed away, the inspector reported. Three other puppies, born to a Rottweiler, also were found dead at the kennel, with Swedland uh, allegedly telling inspectors they must have gotten too cold and died. In addition, a puppy born to Megan, a sheepdog, had to be euthanized after a dog in a nearby enclosure chewed through the wall into the puppy's enclosure and tore the flesh from one leg, leaving the bone exposed. A short time later, a sheepdog puppy from the same litter was determined to be missing. The licensee states that they did find a single bone and assumed Megan ate her puppy, the inspector reported. At the time, inspectors uh, indicated that they'd be returning to the business on February 1 to conduct a follow-up inspection. State records indicate that an Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship inspector visited the facility early last month and, despite the advance notice, found additional violations related to inadequate veterinary care. The IDALS inspector wrote in her report, discussed the need to go down in dog numbers to adequately care for dogs on property. State and federal records indicate the number of dogs at Swedland's kennel had been increased prior to that visit, from 157 dogs and puppies at the time of the December 21-23 inspection to 159 dogs and puppies on February 1. Late last month, Swedland uh, and the IDALS re, uh, reached an agreement whereby Swedland has agreed to downsize her operation to no more than 30 adult dogs. She will have to comply with that limit for at least one year. The agreement imposes no limits on the number of puppies, defined as dogs under 12 months of age, that Swedland can have uh, on hand. And throughout the 2023, the number of puppies that Swedland had on hand was close to half the number of adult dogs. Representatives of the Iowa-based animal welfare organization bailing out 
Benji have filed a complaint about Swedland's operations with the Van Buren County Sheriff and the county attorney. To date, no charges have been filed in the case. This week, bailing out Benji asked Van Buren County officials to review the matter again in light of IDALA's most recent actions. Kirk? And now turning to Metro and Iowa, the front page of that contains a photograph, a couple of photographs on our lead story. The Department of Natural Resources, Iowa Rivers, lakes still too cold to kayak and canoe. One of the pictures is of kayaker Hannah Childs of Cedar Rapids as she competes during the Charles City Challenge Kayak and Stand-Up Paddleboard Contest from June 26, 2021 at the Charles City Whitewater Park in Charles City. The other one is of James Weeks competing in the ninth annual contest as well. The agency says water is unusually warm enough, or excuse me, is usually warm enough in May. Despite a stretch of days with record high temperatures tempting Iowans, it is not yet safe to head out on the water. Bodies of water in Iowa are still too cold to safely go kayaking, canoeing, and the like, and paddlers opting to get out on the water now should know the risk. When it comes to paddling and being out on a river especially, we have to play it smart, and this is a real dangerous time of the year now and late fall. Todd Robertson, Iowa Department of Natural Resources Water Trails Coordinator, told the Des Moines Register. Iowa DNR recommends paddlers wait for consistent warm weather, which will ensure water temperatures reach safe levels, before getting out onto the water. When can paddlers go out into the water in Iowa? The when for safe water activities is weather-dependent, Robertson said. But typically May is when bodies of water in Iowa have a chance to consistently warm up. April is tricky because while it might be a warm day, the temperature of the water is still cold. If you don't want to worry about water temperature, wait until early June, Robertson advised. That's when there have been enough consistent sunlight. How can I check the temperature of a body of water in Iowa? The general rule for Robertson and the paddlers he is out with during early spring and late fall when water is cold is water temperature 60 degrees or less automatically puts you at risk for hypothermia. The colder the water, the higher the risk. Cold water can drain body heat up to four times faster than cold air, according to the National Weather Service. It can also cause cold shock, which is just as dangerous from water temperatures at 50 to 60 degrees versus water at 35 degrees. Cold shock causes dramatic changes in breathing, heart rate, and blood pressure, and it creates a greater risk for drowning, according to the National Weather Service. But paddlers should also account for other factors such as the wind, Robertson said. Get wet? That wind will only exacerbate the cold. Will it be overcast or sunny out? Find information about water temperature through resources, including the National Weather Service's water temperature map, which tracks daily temperatures in regions of the central U.S., including Iowa. Iowa's fishing report on the Iowa DNR's website also provides some information regarding water temperatures in Iowa. Or give a nearby bait shop a call, Robertson said, describing bait shops as a great source of information that could inform you on a body of water's temperature. What are some safety tips for paddles in Iowa? 
Dress for the chance you'll get wet and opt for a wetsuit or a dry suit, Robertson said. He also recommends having a change of clothing that you can access and get out of your wet, cold clothing as soon as possible. Paddlers out on the water should also be aware of and avoid an obstruction of debris called strainers. Like a spaghetti strainer, these piles of wood out on the water can catch you and though water can keep flowing, you may end up flipped and sucked beneath, Robertson explained. These are the number one hazard, and if you do end up plunged into the cold water because of a strainer, that can affect your uh, finger dexterity and movement, he said, which can affect your ability to remove yourself from a dangerous situation. Other safety tips from Robertson and the Iowa DNR? Always wear a life jacket. Paddle in groups of people, not alone. And tell a loved one where you're going and when you're expected to return. Waukee Housing Project Gets Second Chance, Philip Sitter. Waukee City Council has approved the first steps in attempting to revive an affordable housing project that hit a snag last year when it failed to secure a low-income housing tax credit from the state. The city wants to build affordable housing in a 13.6-acre parcel on North Warrior Lane and Northeast Douglas Parkway. The parkway splits the property into northern and southern sections. The original proposed called for two 64-unit townhomes complexes and one on the east side of the road to be built by Wisconsin-based North Point Development. However, an agreement on the project between the city and developers was rescinded because Waukee in 2023 did not receive a competitive 9% low-income housing tax credit through the Iowa Finance Authority. Not getting the tax credit left a funding gap for the first phase of the project, the townhomes in the southern half of the property. On March 18, the City Council unanimously approved two resolutions that lay out a plan for the southern portion of the property if the city should succeed this year by getting the housing tax credit, which probably won't be known until July or August. If the city is awarded the tax credit, North Point would have the option for nine months to purchase about six and a half acres in the southern parcel for $1. And that would provide the site for North Point to build 46 rental townhomes with another 14 for owner occupancy to be built by a third party that's expected to be Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity. Habitat entered the discussions about development of the project after the city's first attempt of securing a low-income housing tax credit, which fell through. North Point would provide the road and utility infrastructure for its 46 townhomes as well as the other 14, said Nick Osborne who is Waukee's assistant city administrator. The rental townhomes would be expected to be affordable for 40 years and would serve people earning 30% to 60% of the area median income, Osborne said. 
He said for a one-person household, that range would be about $22,000 to $44,000, and for a four-person household, $30,000 to $62,000. Osborne said that the uh, northern portion of the property would be exclusively developed by Habitat for Humanity, but more information about that would likely be made public in the weeks ahead. Osborne said Monday that once uh, construction starts on the southern parcel of the property, likely in the spring following the city's successful receipt of the low-income housing tax credit, it would take about 15 months to complete. He has previously said that local employers have told city officials a lack of affordable housing has been a challenge in attracting workers, especially for entry-level positions. Thank you. And data shows that Iowa spends less than peer states on Medicaid fraud abuse investigations, according to Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. New data suggests that Iowa continues to understaff and underfund the office charged with investigating Medicaid fraud and patient abuse. All 50 states have a Medicaid Fraud Control Unit, or MFCU, that is tasked with investigating abuse and neglect of Medicaid beneficiaries, as well as financial fraud perpetuated by Medicaid-funded medical providers. Like Medicaid itself, the MFCU's operations are paid for with a mix of state and federal funding. Collectively, the nation's MFCUs recover $3.35 for every tax dollar that they spend, usually through civil penalties that stem from fraud investigations. A new report from the Office of Inspector General at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says that last year the MFCUs recovered a total of $1.2 billion for taxpayers and secured 329 convictions for patient abuse or neglect. Now, how much each state spends on its fraud control unit generally has some correlation to the amount it spends on Medicaid. Historically, however, Iowa has provided far less funding for its MFCU than states with comparable Medicaid spending. According to the latest data from the National Association of Medicaid Fraud Control Units, five states in 2022 had Medicaid budgets within $1.5 billion of the $8 billion Iowa Medicaid spent that year. All of those states had MFCUs with budgets that were two or four times that of Iowa's unit. In fact, some states with far smaller Medicaid budgets than Iowa spend significantly more on their fraud control units. Indiana, for example, spent only $2.9 billion on Medicaid in 2022, according to the association, which was less than half of what Iowa spent that year. But Indiana allocated $8.4 million for its Medicaid fraud, unit, fraud control unit, which was more than six times the $1.3 million Iowa provided for such operations. According to the association, Arkansas's total spending on Medicaid was almost identical to that of Iowa's in 2022, but its MFCU budget was more than double Iowa's. The Iowa MFCU, which is housed within the Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing, had a total of nine staffers in 2022 
which included five investigators, according to the National Association. Only four other states in the nation had fewer total MFCU staff, and only nine had fewer investigators. In 2022, the Office of Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services previewed the work of Iowa's MFCU and praised it for operating effectively but achieving high case outcomes. But the Inspector General also said the unit was leaving leaving positions vacant and was not maintaining its own approved staffing levels. The low staffing levels were partly the result of a significant turnover of investigators, which in turn contributed to high caseloads, the Inspector General said. Iowa was spending about $759 million on Medicaid per MFCU employee at a time when only two other states in the nation were reporting a higher disparity between total Medicaid spending and spending on investigations. Federal data indicates that Iowa staffing issues date back several years. Although Iowa's unit was approved for uh, for 11 employees in the years 2019, 2020, and 2021, it actually employed seven or eight individuals at the end of each of those years. Nearly all of the staff vacancies during that time consisted of investigator positions, the inspector general reported, noting that while the budget had allowed for seven investigators, only four were employed there at the end of each fiscal year. The inspector general also found that during the three-year period, six investigators had left the unit. Four of them were employed there only a short time, one week to 15 months, and two of those four didn't complete the six-month probationary period. Even if all of the vacant positions were filled, the inspector general reported, the Iowa unit's staffing levels remain low compared to all other fraud control units in the nation. The staffing shortages resulted in the investigators handling as many as 20 open cases at a time, far above the unit's preferred 12 to 15. In the inspector general report, or the inject, inspector general reported, the inspector general recommended that Iowa assess the adequacy of the unit's staffing levels and said adding more staff would ultimately enhance the unit's ability to protect the Medicaid program and its beneficiaries. The state disagreed. While it hired an additional investigator after the Inspector General's visit, it argued that current staffing levels were sufficient. Nine full-time employees are adequate at this time to operate effectively and efficiently, Dial and Director DIAL Director Larry Johnson told the Inspector General Uh, told the Inspector General's office. Specifically, five investigators are sufficient to respond to current referral intakes. The unit, he said, has reasonable caseloads to keep investigators working diligently and was not using taxpayer funds to employ unnecessary personnel. The Iowa Capital Dispatch uh, calls to the Iowa Medicaid Fraud Control Unit referred to the Iowa Department of Inspections. Appeals and licensing, which declined to comment on the data from the National Association of Medicaid Fraud Control Units or the Inspector General's recommendations, other than to cite Johnson's letter. Will Ankeny get a hyper energy bar? This is by Chris Higgins. 
Ankeny could get its own hyper-energy bar. The city's plan and zoning commission approved a site plan for a new location of the energy drink, smoothie, and coffee chain at its Tuesday meeting. Hyper-energy bar has been expanding across the Des Moines metro with locations in Urbandale, West Des Moines, Waukee, Grimes, and most recently, Altoona. The Ankeny site plan is subject to stormwater management and easement approvals by the city council. The company did not immediately respond to a request for further information about when the Ankeny location could open. The proposed 1,029-square-foot hyper-energy bar at 1101 South Ankeny Boulevard would include a double drive through parking spots, outdoor patio space, a shade structure, a connection to the High Trestle Trail, and bike parking. The shop would be across the street from Ankeny High School and north of Viridian Credit Union. Hyper Energy Bar started as a food truck in September of 2020 and opened its first brick-and-mortar location in July of 2021 in Waukee. The site in Ankeny is currently undeveloped. Though all the locations so far are in the Des Moines Metro Quad City-based real estate and hospitality firm Heart of American Group is behind the brand. Other brands in the group's portfolio, with locations from Ohio to Colorado, include Johnny's Italian Steakhouse, Burger Shed, The Machine Shed, and The Republic on Grand, as well as hotels and the Tommy's Express Car Wash chain. And we'll close out this hour with a few items from states within and surrounding the area. From Iowa, Des Moines, the state official who the state official who more Iowans think is performing their job well isn't the governor or attorney general. It's Auditor of State Rob Sand, the sole Democrat holding statewide elected office, a new Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll shows. And from our friends up north in Minnesota, Rochester, a hot air balloon crashed into a power line Wednesday night, sending the balloon floating off for miles and the passengers falling to the ground, and no report of the condition of the passengers. To the south, in Missouri, Springfield, stickers and posters printed in the patriotic colors of red, white, and blue have appeared around Springfield in recent days. While they may appear harmless, the stickers are promotional materials for a white supremacist hate group. To the east in Illinois, Peoria, a group of local politicians, including both of Illinois' U.S. senators and one of Peoria's uh, congressmen, sent a letter to the head of the United States Postal Service asking him to reconsider his plans to move mail processing from four central Illinois post offices. And to our west in Nebraska, Lincoln, a Nebraska lawmaker is widely condemned on both sides of the political aisle for inserting the name of a female colleague while reading a book passage depicting a rape scene while debating about keeping obscenity out of K-12 schools.